So the problem the Air Force has is it would take another 10 years of $8 billion a year in 1980 dollars, which if you you know follow that out, it ends up being about $20 billion a year for 10 years to replace that fleet. And that's an investment our nation has been reluctant to make. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The United States Air Force's Air Combat Command is in the midst of a generational transformation as the United States Air Force increases its focus on deterring and, if necessary, fighting great powers. We'll talk with retired United States Air Force General Mobile Holmes, who was the ACC commander until 2020, and we'll have the headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, we have previously reported that the British government was interested in training Ukrainian pilots. That became real this week when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited London. Prime Minister Sunak committed Britain to start elementary flight training for Ukrainian pilots. What they will learn to fly remains to be seen. By the way, Aviation Week is reporting that the RAF is already going to be sending some of its own trainees to train in Italy because they don't have enough capacity right now. How they fit Ukrainians, we don't know. Belgium has also held up its hand to train Ukrainian pilots. There's a lot of helicopter news this week. As you discussed on this week's business report, Vago, the UAE has canceled plans to acquire 12 Airbus H-225s. Coupled with a growing movement to abandon NH-90s and even return them for a refund, things are not looking great for the European helicopter industry. On the other hand, the U.S. is starting to swoop in. That's also evident in the $8.5 billion sale of CH-47s to Germany. We knew that was coming. But that sale has now been approved by the State Department and formally notified to Congress. Also, Germany has decided to send its Airbus Tigers to early retirement rather than joining the Mark III upgrade program. Instead, they're looking for an off-the-shelf light helicopter. And really, aren't we all? The U.S. Air Force has a new aggressor squadron. The aggressors have been diversifying in recent years to replicate emerging threats. But the doctrine and tactics for fifth-generation aircraft are different enough from fourth-gen that the Air Force just set up a new squadron, the 706, to focus specifically on fourth-gen threats using F-16s. And it's farewell to the fish bed as Romania retires its MiG-21s. That was a fighter synonymous with Warsaw Pact Air for decades. They're getting F-16s from Norway as part of the great European hand-me-down festival. Get ready to say farewell also to the KC-10, the East Coast main operating base, Joint Base McGuire-Dix, Lakehurst, New Jersey, has flown its last operational sortie and is preparing the big birds for the boneyard. There are still some extenders operating out of Travis. Vago? Uh, absolutely uh, amazing. We just commemorated the 50th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. And obviously the MiG-21 uh, was just an unbelievable airplane dawning uh, in the mid-1950s. Uh, and, and it's just extraordinary. And I remember being at Farnborough when it had the electronics upgrades the Israelis were doing, uh, as well as other things. But the maneuverability of the jet, even though it was a Mach 2 airplane, was something, you know what I mean? The F-16, the Rafale, the Eurofighter would be doing these tight, 
tight demonstrations. The fulcrums were doing the tight demonstrations. And then the MiG-21 was effectively doing these long slashing passes. Certainly a Turner compared with uh, maybe other airplanes like an F-4 Phantom and the like, and, and seen as somewhat more nimble, but not kind of outmoded. Uh, and it's going to be very sad to see uh, the KC-10s uh, go. Just a tremendous capability, carries an enormous amount of gas, an enormous amount of cargo. You know, going to be sorry to see him go. Uh, just a very comfortable airplane to also travel on. Uh, and terrific that the Air Force is sharpening its skills, right? Any new aggressor squadron uh, is a good thing, especially as we uh, go into the interview with our guest. Yes, Mago, and the MiG-21 is really what inspired the U.S. to get into the turning aircraft like the F-16 and the F-18 when we did the post-mortem on Vietnam and realized we needed a new generation of aircraft that operated in a very different way. A lot of that was because of what we saw Vietnamese and, dare we say, Russian pilots over Vietnam do with the MiG-21s. Uh, and of course, the MiG-17, right? I mean, we think of it as dated, but it was still, that was a, a better turning airplane uh, as well and, and uh, made uh, a whole series of challenges for our air crew. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And it is my honor to now welcome to the program retired United States Air Force General Mike Mobile Holmes, former commander of uh, the Services Air Combat Command. In addition to ACC, he had a number of other interesting jobs uh, across the Air Force, including deputy commander of the Air Education and Training Command, as well as the A-5-8 uh, the head of strategy plans and requirements, which is one of the most interesting jobs in the United States Air Force. Uh, he is well known as a leader, a visionary, and an all-around great guy, sir. Welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. I've missed you. <laughs> same, uh, same here. I used to really uh, value uh, our conversations uh, when you were ACC, uh, and I truly appreciate all the time you you made for us. And I'm glad that you're joining uh, JJ. Uh, and I together on this program, I want to start with sort of the bigger picture. It's been about a decade uh, since uh, the United States really started the China focus. I remember it was in the 2013 period where uh, whether you were talking to then Undersecretary Kendall or you were talking to uh, Secretary Hagel and then to Secretary Carter and certainly Deputy Secretary Work was sort of ringing the alarm bell that we're really got to start moving and change our focus. And then uh, we are, uh, have to get into a great power competition mindset uh, that gained momentum during the Trump administration, where there was greater resourcing matched to the strategy, albeit more on the readiness side, which I know was welcome uh, when you were sitting in that in the chair at ACC. And it's continued to pace since uh, with a greater sense of urgency about how we're moving uh, the needle. How much progress have we made in moving that needle? And are we moving the needle fast enough if we're going to be ready for an adversary like China. And to more importantly, not, not just to fight, people focus on the fighting part of it, whereas actually the more important part of this is actually deterring the Chinese and having them avoid a miscalculation. Yeah, well, I think we've I think we have moved the needle, but I think we have a whole lot more work to do. I, I would say the biggest change is that you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, when we were discussing the problems that the PRC posed or might pose in the world, there was still debate about the right way to 
work with them to uh, counter the threats that they pose. There was still debate about whether China actually desired to expand its influence and be more forceful around the world. I think now that debate has largely concluded, primarily based on China's actions and the things that they say. And now there's the hard work of trying to build deterrence so that we don't have to fight. And one of the things people talk about is they say, well, China has this mathematical approach to combat, and it's based on the idea of you want to win without fighting. So, you know, they're not going to launch an attack unless they're sure that they have, you know, enough weapons to hit every target and they understand all the targets. You know, I've come to believe uh, to them that winning without fighting means that the other side decides they can't win and decides not to fight. And so I think largely their efforts are built around trying to build a situation that our allies and the West decide that we can't win, so why fight? So the efforts that we're taking now are really important. Are there any, let me just ask one follow-up. I mean, obviously you're privy to a lot more than we are. Are there specific capabilities that you find particularly worrying, or is it that they have capabilities, none of which are 10 feet tall, but if we're smart about it, we can actually counter them and maintain that deterrent edge? Because I agree, I think they wanna win without fighting, and as long as we've got some pushback, that you know that makes their calculation more difficult. Yeah. Well, there's certainly some things that they've done to gain some advantages in specific areas. You can talk about their ballistic weapons that can reach, you know, out into the second island chain. You can talk about the things they've done in the air-to-air kill chain to add much longer-range weapons that have reduced or in many cases, eliminated the first look, first shot, first kill advantage that uh, American air superiority forces were used to. We could pick some more of those, but to me, the most alarming fact is that they haven't picked just one thing. They're moving out across the board to try to gain an advantage in everything from those tactical parts that are one component of the struggle to mastering the electronic warfare environment to their concepts for kind of counter command and control warfare and system collapse, where they try to go after your command and control system and the systems you use to plan and present forces and make those fail all the way to their economic efforts all around the world. So there are, there are specific things that are worrying, but it's that entire across the board effort that's most worrying. At Air Combat Command, you had the challenge of integrating fourth and fifth generation aircraft. The uh, F-22 was already there when you arrived. You were preparing for the arrival of F-35 in serious numbers. As Vago pointed out earlier, you spent time as the vice at Air Education and Training Command. Is it a training challenge to develop pilots in that environment? How do you get them to understand what the other aircraft, what the other generation capabilities are and how to interact with them? And do you prefer to have pilots who are specialized in a type, or do you want them to be able to move back and forth? Thanks, JJ. There's a lot there to try to get after. You know, I think our training system in general is uh, specialized. So we start with uh, undergraduate training that provides basic skills. Uh, We add some advanced training on based on which community you're going to, the mobility career uh, community or the fighter community or the bomber community. And then we teach you how to fly one specific system. At the same time, we're teaching you how to be a pilot in that community. So if you go to the F-16, what we would call the B course, the long course for people that have never flown a fighter, you're learning how to fly the F-16 and use it, but you're also just learning how to be a fighter pilot at the same time. 
And that's a lot to learn. So we focus on building the skills in your own weapon system. And then we do our integration primarily in places like Red Flag, where you come with your squadron and you join with squadrons from all different kinds of airframes and platforms or networks, and you learn how they work together. And then we we build a core of absolute experts in that at the weapon school in the uh, integration phase that's conducted in the last several weeks of the weapon school, because we want every squadron to have someone that, that's an expert, not just in their platform and how to use it best, but how it fits mm-hmm. into everything else that the Air Force does. Let me follow up on that training question. You, you tried to be an innovator when it came to training. We're not retaining pilots or aviators and indeed even air crew uh, the way that we should. Uh, Folks are getting their training and and leaving the service. We've tried all sorts of things to try to retain them, including bonuses. And so the key is actually training pilots faster, which is one of the things that you concluded. And and what are the trade-offs we can make? Uh, You advise a very innovative company called Red Six now, which is looking at different ways of sort of sharpening training skills by combining live virtual uh, with live training, right? You can be in a simulator, but be getting gas uh, from a tanker that's flying somewhere. The Navy is fundamentally going to be changing how it trains its pilots. Historically, it's wanted a training aircraft that can land on a carrier. The replacement for the T-45 Goshawk is going to be an airplane that actually doesn't land on an aircraft carrier. And, and it'll be a, a shoreside training establishment. What are the more innovative things we should be doing And can we get to a point where we can train aviators, right? This is a relevant question for the Ukrainians. We have a tendency of saying this is going to take three years to produce a pilot. I don't know, in World War II, we were putting, you know, mobile homes in a P-51 Mustang that was as advanced an airplane as existed on the planet virtually. And oh, by the way, there was a million ways it could come back to kill you. It was such a powerful airplane. What are some things that we can do to fundamentally change the way we go about training, certifying keeping current aviators that will be more innovative than the way that we're doing it now? Well, it's certainly ripe. It's certainly, that's a great question. And it's certainly ripe for a revolution. If you look at our training program, we still pretty much train pilots the same way we did in the 1950s. It's an industrial approach. And at that time, when we had hundreds of squadrons, we decided the appropriate way was to dedicate a tremendous part of that is a training enterprise. It would focus only on training. So, you know, our UP, our UPT, our pilot training, when I went through it in the 80s and when I was a group commander in it in the 20s, you know, I would tell you it's very activity-based. It's based on the idea that if the average student completes the events in the syllabus with an average instructor pilot, they'll kind of teach themselves how to fly by the end of a year. And then we dedicated big portions of our fleet to training in that particular airplane because we could and because to get the industrial scale to generate the number of people that we needed, that was appropriate. Uh, When we went from the 130 fighter squadron Air Force, we had a desert storm now down to about the 55 or 60 fighter squadron Air Force we have now. The question is, can we still afford to maintain a third of those airplanes being training coded and not combat coded and available? And I think the answer is no. So there are a lot of other air forces that are smaller than we are, and they find a way to do it. There are things that we can do to learn from that. Killer Quast, as the AETC commander, started some experimentation to try to see what was possible. Uh, the AETC commanders that followed and the 19th Air Force commanders that oversee the 
Blind Training Enterprise have worked to make some changes and they've introduced new tools. And I'm confident that they can produce a basic pilot faster and in some cases better. The difference between that P-51 pilot in the 1940s and the current pilot is that that P-51 pilot certainly had to master a, you know, a bucking beast and, and learn gunnery, but they didn't have to learn to operate a radar and a radar warning receiver and a jammer and a data link and to work with a, a whole complexity of forces. And what we find is it's one thing to have a pilot shortage. It's another thing to have a fighter pilot shortage. But what we really have is an experienced fighter pilot shortage. You need a fighter squadron to be roughly half experienced pilots so that they can teach and lead. And then you need to produce enough excess that you're able to put people in key staff positions so they influence decisions the Air Force is making. And then in this exquisite command and control system that the Air Force maintains that nobody else in the Joint Force does. Uniquely among those other small Air Forces, you know, they're not maintaining an Air Operations Center in every combatant commander around the world with the expertise that goes with that. So our root problem really is an experienced fighter pilot shortage. And there are a lot of ways to address that. Uh, you know, I've suggested some and some ways to pioneer going after that. But I want to go after one thing you said about the retention problem. I mean, this, this may strike you as uh, counter to that. But what we really had, as you said, was a production problem. Uh, in the years immediately after 9-11, the bottom fell out of the U.S. economy, which means the airlines were not hiring. They had plenty of pilots. Uh, the combination of less economic opportunity outside the Air Force and an important fulfilling conflict to go be a part of. Uh, almost all of our pilots wanted to stay, which is counter to the way we've always done business. You know, we wanted uh, something like a third uh, of our pilots to stay after that initial commitment. And then we would draw our leaders and the experienced people to do other things. When all of them stayed, we made the fatal mistake of cutting production. And instead of producing 12 or 1500 pilots a year, we went down to 800 or 900. And there was a year there a little more than 20 years ago where we only made 100 fighter pilots across the whole year. So we're in a position now where we to fill our squadrons, we've relied on keeping more people. And so we're really keeping more people than we would have kept in any other year. And the people that stay after that first commitment, you want people that have a burning desire to serve and lead and change, you know, the Air Force for the future and not people that are just making an economic decision every day. And right now we have some of both, right? We still have that crowd that have a burning desire to do it. And then we have people that are making an, ec an economic decision on whether they want to stay in the Air Force or not. So production is really important. 19th Air Force, UPT, Air Education and Training Command are struggling to produce more because our pilot training aircraft are old. The T-38 is outlived, you know, maybe its third service life. The T-1 is finishing its second service life. Uh, the T-6 is uh, pretty close to the end of its first service life and now takes some efforts to, you know, work on it and give it another one. And there are capacity uh, limits too. We made decisions for efficiency's sake to eliminate some of our pilot training bases. And you find that the limit may not just be airplanes, it's runways and airspace to get everything done. So people are working hard to address that, but we're not gonna solve our problems until we produce our way out of them. And that will take, that will take a while. In one of those staff jobs that requires someone with a passion for the future, is the A58. And when you were in that job, you were kind enough to invite me over for a conversation that covered a lot of ground. 
at the time, A-10 retirement was a major issue. And there were plans to acquire two aircraft, the OAX and the AX-2, to fill that role. Then they sent you to ACC and said, no, you're not getting any airplanes to replace the A-10. Current plans would replace capacity with capability across the Air Force. In the modern environment, is there still a strong argument for retaining older types of aircraft that may not be as survivable? And I guess the flip side question to that is, does divest to invest ever actually work? Well, again, JJ, you asked great questions, and I certainly enjoyed the chance to sit down with you uh, that time in my office and other times, and I learned a lot from the reports that you wrote and the analysis you conducted. So thanks for sharing that with me. You know, one of the things that always happens is, you know, you predict the future and you almost always get it wrong, right? So the time to have bought uh, a light attack airplane would have been in 2001, when we were beginning 20 years of war in a permissive environment uh, in countries with poor infrastructures where folks on the ground were going to rely on air for their surveillance and their firepower. And if we had built, you know, two or 300 of them in that time frame, I'm sure we would have been glad. The problem is that nobody knows how long those are going to last. And so you try to make it through with the force you have and think about the future and what you're going to be doing next. Uh, the A-10 was created, as everybody understands, to try to go after massed Russian and Warsaw Pact armor on a European battlefield. It was a, a unique creation designed to be able to operate under the weather, to be able to turn in a very tight turning radius to carry uh, the, a gun that was designed to kill armor. But even at the time it was created, it was understood. It was built to take one 30 millimeter round and survive. It was built with redundant systems so you could try to get the pilot home. But even then, it was understood that they wouldn't last very long in that conflict against a peer uh, adversary. Uh, as we went into the future and the wall came down, you know, we conducted things like the bottom up review, which, I, you know, frankly, I think were designed to come up with case use cases that would let us hold on to as much force as we could to kind of take caution against what might happen in the future. And so we kept a lot of resources that maybe weren't required for a war against Russia anymore when Russia kind of fell apart on us, uh, but seemed turned out to be very useful in other conflicts. When we went to Iraq in Desert Storm, uh, the A-10 was uh, effective, but it also took uh, the worst beating of any of the fighter aircraft, partly because of the environment it operated in and partly because of its characteristics. And it was extremely useful in the war on terrorism as a wing commander at Bagram. You know, I saw it, I commanded it. I commanded it also at Seymour Johnson twice. The most important thing about the A-10 is not the airplane. It's the community of people involved in it. Now, much like the F-15C community I grew up in that only had one mission to do, the A-10 guys had one mission to do, close air support of ground forces. They were completely uh, obsessed with it to the point that you know you can joke about both them and the F-15C world being cults at that time, uh, down to exactly what you do with every switch in the airplane in any situation. If you went to an award presentation for an A-10 pilot, you'd hear him say things like, and then I came off the target in the direction of friendly troops as I had been taught to do. Every single thing was down to there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it because they only had one mission. As we go forward, the problem is, can we afford single mission aircraft like that in the future? I've always believed you needed some, 
you wanted some single mission close air support, some single mission, you know, deep strike, some exquisite air to air, and then a large multi-role force that you could swing into all those missions as a weight of effort required based on the situation on the battlefield. But when I would ask my friends in the Marine Corps, you know, talk about this A-10 argument, I'd go, hey, how come you guys don't have any A-10s? And Marine aviators would come back pretty quickly and say, because we can't afford a single mission aircraft. We have to have a multi-role airplane that can do a lot of different things. And as the Air Force shrinks from 130 fighter squadrons down to 60 fighter squadrons and thinks about focusing its capabilities on deterring war with China, uh, the A-10 is a tired airframe that would take a lot of work to maintain, and none of the COCOMs are asking for it, and not many of them will even accept it as a fighter uh, to meet their their presence requirements. Okay, but let's uh, open the aperture a little bit on that and go to the reason for the A-10 divestiture, and I didn't mean to get very specific on A-10, Right, is that the Air Force is willing at this point to trade capacity for capability. Does that so, work in the long term? No, it doesn't. It never has. And, you know, I know you know that as you ask the question, but here's the problem. In the 1980s, when the, the administration came into power, the Reagan administration, part of their strategic approach to the Warsaw Pact was to rely on our industrial power and produce them into a situation where they felt like they couldn't win. We spent about an extra $8 billion a year in 1980 dollars for 10 years on the combat air forces. And that got us the F-15 and its follow-ons. It got us the F-16 and the follow-ons that go uh, with that in both numbers and increasing capability. We we're able to hold on to other things that we had, like the A-10, the F-111 for a while, and it laid the groundwork for the F-22 and eventually the F-35. After the invasion of Iraq and Desert Storm, after we pushed uh, Iraq out of Kuwait and Desert Storm, our nation took a procurement holiday on the combat air forces. So the average age of the fleet grew from you know, five or 10 year average up to a 30 year average age, which makes them tremendously expensive to operate and sustain. Miracle workers across industry and the Air Force kept old airplanes, old F-15s, old F-16s uh, viable and useful. But because we stopped replacing them over time, then we came up against a cliff where they all need to be replaced at the same time. So the problem the Air Force has is it would take another 10 years of $8 billion a year in 1980 dollars, which if you you know follow that out, it ends up being about $20 billion a year for 10 years to replace that fleet. And that's an investment our nation has been reluctant to make over the last 20 years because of the focus on uh, wars against irregular adversaries in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's an investment that still has to be made. And if you're not going to provide that kind of money to the Air Force to modernize for the future, and you give them the priorities of pay all your nuclear bills, which the Air Force provides, my joke, you know, is three of the four legs of the triad, uh, because we also have to provide most of the command and control. Prepare for China. Then Air Force leaders look and they say, OK, if I do that, I don't have enough money to even do both of those things, much less keep all the legacy force that I have. And you take that argument in to the Department of Defense and they either listen or they don't. And in general, they listen a little bit. They do enough to make themselves feel better, but they don't provide everything that's needed. 
and you go to Congress and you get the same thing. And then you go to testify and they say, General Holmes, how could you possibly think about retiring this 30 year old airplane for my district that's still useful and, uh, you know, still can play a role in national security? And the answer is because you don't give me enough money, sir or ma'am, to be able to do everything <laughs> you asked me to do. And I'm sure that's an answer that goes over well. Well, you know, they usually turn it around and say, you know, Joe Holmes, you propose to retire the A-10 again, in spite of everything that we've asked you or told you. Is this purely a financial decision? Answer yes or no, you know, to, to get to that question. And their, their response is, if it's a money problem, let us fix that. But in reality, it's a zero-sum game over there, too, as JJ understands. So they might give you the money to hold on to the A-10s but they don't give you the extra end strength to be able to do that and provide maintenance people for new F-35 units. And they take it from another program to pay that bill. Let me ask you uh, just about that capability development question. You know, we got used to a life where we took air superiority for granted, you know, over Iraq and Afghanistan, it was not exactly a demanding environment. We're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. And that was the conflict from hell, which had the counterinsurgency element of it with the highest end capability um, also, right? I mean, you would get shot down with a very modern air defense system and then end up on the ground uh, in almost uh, you know, a semi-medieval uh, fight with uh, booby traps and, and, the, and the like of them. Do we have as good of a roadmap as we need to develop the kind of capabilities we need in order, you know, as you said, the Chinese are developing capabilities across a broad spectrum with simultaneity. They're a lot better than the Russians are in, in many uh, cases. Um, you know, they're much more methodical than uh, the Russians are. Um, from your standpoint, are we developing the right kind of capabilities quickly enough if we're going to be able to deter across uh, the, the whole piece. We've got the training piece of it, right? You can get right. people spun up and smarter on the nuclear delivery mission and, you know, B-61, uh, you know, we may not have paid as much attention to and we're now paying more attention to. But fundamentally, you know, we talk about NGAD. NGAD started under your, your, your predecessor. Hawk Carlisle was talking about shaping what NGAD looked like. You were very active in that process of theorizing the airplane. Are we developing enough of the things we need to as quickly as we need to develop them if we are going to deter? Because it seems like we're about to, we might go off a fiscal cliff, in which case you're going to have even less money to do this stuff. Yeah. Well, we have plans Time will tell whether they're going to deliver capability fast enough. Would I like to see us go faster? No, absolutely. Um, the larger kind of issue is, you know, John Corley, who was also one of my predecessors at Air Combat Command, when he went to War College, you know, he wrote a paper on, does the Joint Force take air superiority for granted? And, you know, his conclusion was yes. Several years later, when I came to the School for Advanced Air and Space Power Studies, uh, I re-looked at that. Uh, my paper was uh, called The Counter-Air Companion, a short primer on air superiority for Joint Force Commanders to try to explain to them a little bit about why they should care about controlling the air and then why their air component commander was going to drive them a little batty doing things to go get it and you know why they should let them. When you come out of 20 years of war where we controlled, completely controlled the air environment and everybody got used to it, Again, we've come to two views. One is that we take it for granted in places. And the other one that's just as dangerous is, well, you know, we can't do that anymore. So we got to learn to fight without it. 
You know, when we started fighting the Japanese in the Pacific at Guadalcanal, 16-inch battleship gun shells were landing on our airfields. Uh, we didn't control the air or the water, and it was a long fight there to uh, establish kind of a beachhead in Guadalcanal, to feed forces in, to lure the Japanese into feeding forces in. And the result is in that early part of the war when we didn't have the forces to go into Europe yet, but we were generating forces, we used those to destroy the flower of the Japanese Air Force, both on their naval air forces and their army air forces. And when the resources and the time came, we controlled the air and we were able to push across the Pacific. Uh, in Europe, it took us three years to get the air superiority required to get forces across the English Channel at Normandy. And the way we did it was by bombing targets that the Germans felt like had to be defended. And so they sent their air force up and over time we learned how to kill them. If you go to Vietnam, uh, the North Vietnamese were, were winning in the kill ratio over Hanoi and over the North until we threw more resources and training at it, we're able to regain that. So I guess what I'm getting at is that air superiority has to be fought for, it has to be earned, but it remains an essential part of success on modern battlefields. And if you look at what China is doing, they certainly believe that. And they're certainly working to be able to control the air uh, over the part of the world that they see as theirs uh, to control and to extend that out uh, with uh, increased range and with increased training and with increased capability. My concern is that we have people saying things that I don't think understand what this war will be like that say, well, we're not going to be able to do it. We're going to have it in only in places and times. That's a condition you live with while you have to, but your goal is to control the air because it gives you flexibility and freedom to do all the other things. And controlling the air, especially in that theater, is not just a matter of platforms. The Air Force has experimented through the years with a variety of force presentations and operating concepts. Uh, we all remember the Air Expeditionary Forces, the pre-made force packages for rapid deployment with rotational readiness, never really got adopted. Now we have the idea of agile combat employment, operating modern Air Forces from austere and dispersed bases. What are the odds that's actually going to happen? And what are the major challenges in getting from today's Air Force to that more expeditionary one? You know, I, I'll, I'll kind of take those in order. The first one is that, you know, the reason that that rotational force never worked is that uh, the department never enforced appetite control on the combatant commanders. And so we continuously deployed beyond our ability to maintain readiness. The Navy was able to say, Hey, a carrier wing, the ships have to go into the shipyard. If you steal from that now, you won't get a carrier at all next year. The Army had, you know, a patch chart that showed training and certification, and they're able to say you can't take a company out of this brigade or you break the whole brigade. The Air Force broke the Air Force down into small UTCs, some of them with one airman or two airmen or five airmen in them. And you could always look in and find one of those that was C1 or C2 and deploy it. So the failure of that system was not the fault of the system, it was the fault of the demand and the inability to limit our demand or to create more force to meet the higher demand. The efforts in agile combat support, you can look at them as something new. You can also look at them as a throwback to, you know, to Guadalcanal and the times that we were there. And, you know, to answer your, is it real? Are people really trying to do it? Uh, wings are training at it. They've been training at it for four or five years now. 
we started exercises to try to empower our young leaders to take ops and maintenance and go out and do things, you know, for a weekend or a week. And back in 2017, that built into uh, larger agile combat support exercises where we'd send a wing commander with a portion of their force and give them some command and control and let them go hop around in multiple places in Europe or multiple places somewhere in the Western United States. PACAF has certainly tried it out in the Pacific. You have to try it. You have to develop the doctrine. You have to see what your needs are. And people are working to try to develop the, the equipment and the techniques and the training that are required to do it. So are we serious about it? Yes. It certainly has drawbacks too, right, though? So we got used to providing combat power at its most efficient by lumping a lot of squadrons together with the support, taking advantage of the common support equipment, go to places we had been before with established runways and facilities to include where you're going to sleep and where you're going to eat. We could defend that one base with Patriot or Hawk. And, you know, that was our efficient model for the Cold War. If China is able to over-target those defenses and force us into operating from every runway we can find, then we have to learn to operate in a distributed way, which means squadrons have to be built different. You have to have more NCOs. You have to have more uh, leadership that's able to operate and lead people in small groups. And so that's going to take a while to train to. It's not just the kit. It's building the people that can do it. I, I want to ask you uh, both a culture and a lessons uh, learned question. Obviously, General Brown, the chief, uh, has worked on driving culture change, but every successful leader uh, was doing it. And he was doing it at PACAF at the time you were doing it at Air Combat Command, as others, you know, sort of across the board were working cultural elements of improving capabilities. And all of that is to more rapidly implement lessons that are being learned. And we have a laboratory in the form of Ukraine that's going on now uh, that is generating an enormous number of lessons learned, including from unmanned and speed of innovation, the importance of flexibility, the importance of making it up as you go along, the importance of emissions control, for example. From your standpoint, what are the key, the most important lessons from Russia that you think are applicable elsewhere, right? Because some of this is just the incompetence of the Russians, right? Whereas there are actually broader lessons that are applicable to an adversary that might actually be better at it. What are sort of the valid, you know, the validations of the culture changes that are being made? Right. What are the other sort of hard lessons that are coming from this that you think we ought to be paying more attention to that we might not be? Well, uh, when I during the time I was a five eight nine ACC did a study and they brought a brief around and they were looking at the future of uh, air dominance and the future of kind of air activity and they said, okay, look. Reduced cross-section, stealth, low observability is essential, but not sufficient to be able to win in the future war battle. People will be able to find you. They will make progress toward trying to target you. You will not be invisible, but you'll be hard to target. So electronic combat will still be required, but that alone won't be sufficient. Both controlling your emissions and going after the enemy along with low observability and being able to hide you have to have both of those, but it's not enough. And then the third thing we've always used of suppression and destruction of enemy air defenses is still going to be required uh, if we're going to win. And I think the war in the air war in the Ukraine bears that out. Neither Air Force really has had the capability to do all three of those things. Neither side really is employing much reduced cross-section or low observability in their aircraft. 
Uh, so they use trickery and tactics to try to make themselves hard to find, which is, you know, another way to do it. Both sides are using a lot of electronic combat resources, both to find each other and to uh, fool each other. But neither side has an air capability to go after the other's defenses. And so what we've gotten is a stalemated battlefield, much like World War I, where artillery is king. But in this case, artillery is being fed by sensors that are largely airborne, some spaceborne. And those sensors have to either be made so many and so small that you can't kill them all, what we see with a lot of the uh, you know, small RPAs, or they have to be defended by air assets. So my contention is that if either Air Force, the Russian Air Force or the Ukrainian Air Force, had those three fundamental capabilities, then we would have broken out of trench warfare, we would have had maneuver warfare, and we wouldn't be in a, a, a year-plus-long struggle where artillery is killing hundreds of thousands of people, both military and civilians, uh, by being able to take advantage of the air. You know, we are using a lot of the same tools we would use to target and find out where the enemy systems are, but we're substituting artillery with longer and longer ranges to go push those defenses further and further back. And I think if either side had the air element to take advantage of that, we would not be a year later, you know, still fighting along roughly the same lines. Finally, sir, there's about to be another change at the top of Air Combat Command. Your successor, Mark Grace Kelly, is moving on, and Kenneth Cruiser Wilsbach is coming in. Based on your experience, what's the biggest adjustment a new head of ACC has to make, whether they're coming from the Pentagon or from a combatant yeah. command? And how do you take a force that's used to a generation of warfare that looks like Iraq and Afghanistan and turn them back into people who are ready to go tomorrow for the big fight? Well, those are two exceptional officers. And I you know, wish my best to Mark Kelly and, and Tanya as they finish up their time in command and will be moving into the next world. We've worked together many times over the past. He's been a tremendous teacher and friend to me, and I wish them all the best. And then, uh, you know, as the Wills box come in, uh, he brings uniquely firsthand look at exactly what it'll take to deter or defeat China and where the shortfalls are. And that should really prepare him well to influence the rest of the Air Force from Air Combat Command. But I would tell you, to me, the biggest leap in understanding uh, was that as Air Combat Command grew to be conventional forces rescue, command and control like we're used to, but to bring the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance forces and the cyber forces into Air Combat Command and put those all together, uh, providing this air the service component to multiple COCOMs and lost people to the headquarters Air Force out of the thinking engine, out of the future engine. A lot of the people that went to Air Force Futures were taken from Air Combat Command staff what you find is the Air Combat Command commander as your focus has to be uh, primarily on readiness and improving the readiness of the force uh, to meet the demands of the warfighters out in the combatant commands. And that includes both helping think of new ways to use what you have to try to provide additional capability and then taking the, the forces that you have and trying to get them the tools that they need to be ready for the new kinds of conflict. Out at the Warfare Center at, at Nellis, between the Weapons School and the Red Flag guys, they're doing a really good job of trying to go fight uh, in the way that we will have to fight with what we have now. 
and identify shortfalls and identify workarounds and then come back and raise your hand and say, this is what we need to succeed. They're integrating uh, the, the unique capabilities the F-35 brings uh, into this whole enterprise that we talked about of combat forces, electronic combat forces, cyber forces. How do you use your intelligence forces to be able to intelligently work a long range air to air and air to ground kill chain? The work is being done. And again, time will tell whether General Wilsbach will have enough time to do everything he would like to do before those forces are called on to go fight somewhere. Do you see a window? I know that General Minahan came under some criticism for the window. There's a lot of discussion of windows, whether five years, two years or whatever. What's your sense if you were a window betting man? Uh, there certainly there certainly is a lot of discussion about it, which is great. And it's part of where we started that now instead of saying, you know, do we think China poses a threat to uh, the, the liberal democratic world order? We now are talking about when uh, will that become a physical threat uh, to them? You know, my my view is probably sooner rather than later. And part of the reason is that Mr. Kendall, others in the department across the services have put programs in place to try to bring new capabilities that will address any temporary advantage China gained by focusing on how to defeat us for 20 years while we were focused on violent extremists in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so part of what you worry about is, will they look at the things that we're going to deliver in 2030 and after that and decide, hey, we better not wait for that. We better do everything we can to try to go before that. And so that means you also have to put some focus into your current forces and so that's the dilemma that the Department of Defense faces, is how do you resource both of those, the things you have to do to deny their advantages in the future, and then the things you have to do to get every ounce of readiness and deterrence capability you can out of your current forces. And that's why, you know, defense budgets are going up. Is there room within that defense budget to make choices and, and do things smarter and better? I believe there is, but that's the task left to you know, the people on the Secretary of Defense's staff and on the Hill. It's a really tough, tough place that they're in, and I wish them the best. And, you know, in retirement, there are many of us that stand ready to help. Mobile, always an honor and pleasure talking. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. So many more questions we could ask you. So you're welcome back anytime uh, in the future. All the best to you and yours, and uh, already looking forward to welcoming you back on the program. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, JJ. Thanks for your efforts to keep these issues in the forefront. It's great to see you. See you again soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.